Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. Uh, one of the things that we are commanded to do uh, it, together, corporately, um, is to celebrate communion, uh, to, to remember uh, God's love and faithfulness. Uh, the other major thing that the church is commanded to do together uh, is baptisms, uh, to uh, be invited in to experiencing the uh, symbolism of death and rising again, to identify with Christ in his death and resurrection, uh, to be invited into that uh, being uh, one with Jesus in that way. Uh, and it is also a uh, going out, a command to do this as a, a symbol of Jesus being Lord of our lives, that we are publicly committing our lives to Christ, uh, not just as an individual, but as part of a community, that we will uh, live and serve and love as part of this community, uh, and uh, that uh, we will uh, support and encourage and engage with uh, one another in the following after Jesus, in, in the life and way of Christ. So one of the ways that we uh, do that is that uh, at the end of the summer, uh, we say, hey, if you've been thinking about baptism, uh, if, if you're saying, yeah, I, I've never had this moment of publicly declaring uh, that I uh, am uh, following Jesus with my life, and I, I would like to be able to point to a moment where I did that. Uh, or if you have had a move toward Jesus in the last year that was just a significant, yeah, I was kind of doing the Jesus thing, um, or maybe you weren't doing the Jesus thing at all. And you say, I have stepped into that, into making him Lord of my life, uh, that I uh, and now am committed to the truth that Jesus died and rose from the dead, uh, and I want my life to reflect that. Uh, those are really good reasons to have a conversation, at least, about getting baptized. Uh, so, I. Uh, Yes, it's happening at the end of the summer, uh, but there are some conversations we would like to have between now and then. So if you're interested in getting baptized, if I, as I say this, you're like, well, actually, I have no interest in getting baptized, but something in me is telling me I do. That works too. Uh, I would love to, uh, to hear from you. So if you email josh at easthills.org, uh, you grab me after the service, uh, call our office, whatever it may be. I would love to talk to you about that um, and celebrate uh, those things together. If communion is uh, often a subdued celebration, uh, Babstravaganza is not. Uh, and so we would love to have you be a, a part of that. Okay, as we turn towards scripture together this morning, I want to talk about the whole of scripture for just a moment. So you may not have thought about scripture in this way before, uh, but scripture is a literary document, right? It, it is uh, a, a document of different types of literature that uh, is breathed out by God uh, and written down by people in uh, human types of literature ways. Uh, and so, for our purposes this morning, uh, we will cover, uh, we'll, we'll say there are four major ones, okay? So there is story, narrative, there's stories happening in scripture, right? Uh, there's law, there's laws and rules, there's letters from one person to another person or to a group, uh, and there is poetry. Psalms and some of the prophecies and those kind of things are, are poetic. Okay, so story, law, letters, poetry. What I'd like you to do is just Take a second, knowing whatever it is you know about the Bible, 
to think through what percentage of scripture do you think is each of those things? So what percentage of scripture is story? What percentage of scripture is law? What percentage is letters? Uh, and what percentage is poetry? Okay, so story, law, letters, poetry. How does that sort of break down? Uh, and, and a little uh, group participation here. Let's focus in on story. Okay? So I would love to have you raise your hand if you think at least 40% of the Bible is story. At least 40% of the Bible is in that sort of narrative genre of things. Okay? And for those of you saying, well, the whole Bible is the story of God. Yes, correct. That's just not what we mean. Okay? The narrative stuff. So yes, you're 100% right. You win. But, uh, but for this, okay, so at least 40%. Okay, so keep your hand up if you think it's at least 50%. At least 60%? At least 70%? Okay. Uh, so, at least according to the people that uh, I learned this from, um, 70% of scripture is stories. Is stories of people going from uh, one place to another. Is stories of people uh, living out uh, their lives. Uh, the Bible is 70% story. And uh, part of what has happened uh, over time is uh, people like me with a microphone tend to like talking about uh, the letters and the rules, right? And maybe the poetry. And, uh, and so we, we lose sight of how much of the Bible is simply story. Scripture specifically is the story of the people of Israel and their interactions with God their interactions with each other and the people around them. It is, it is their story. <clears throat> now, one of the interesting things about story, story is a super powerful thing, right? Jesus teaches in stories a lot. He tells a lot of, a lot of stories. Um, part of what is beautiful about stories is that stories uh, typically do not have a pretty little bow moral ending, right? Like, like the story may end with a happily ever after, but it's not necessarily teaching a thing, or at least I hope you don't think the Disney happily ever afters are teaching you how life goes, because, whew. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> so moving on. Uh, stories are typically just put out there and left for people to carry them with them and pull whatever lessons they might from the story. Story is also powerful because our stories and specifically, the stories we tell are making up our lives. And I say that intentionally because it is not actually the stories we experience that make up the story of our life. It is the stories we tell. Because whether you're retelling that story accurately or not, you are building your life based on the story you tell of your past, your history, your family, your experiences. And I won't dive too much into that today, but just to not leave that completely hanging, that we may experience a thing, but tell it a little bit differently based on how it impacted us. This is how, if you have siblings, you actually know this is true. Because you can have the same experience growing up, either in it like the, just trying to tell the story of the first 18 years of your life, but even just a moment or a slice or a story or that one time dad got mad or whatever, that you actually tell that story very differently than your siblings. And our lives are based on how we tell that story. Our understanding of how life works, of how relationships work, of how our relationship with that person works 
is built on how we tell that story. Scripture is the people of Israel telling the story of their experience. Because it is God-breathed, we believe that gives it a lot more weight. (laughs) That they're telling the story of their experience with the world around them uh, and with God. And how uh, we tell stories then uh, really matters. This summer, we are looking at the stories of Jesus' interactions with the disciples, with the crowds of people around him, with the public leaders of his day. And we're simply asking the question as we look at these stories, who is it that we're seeing? What is this Jesus guy all about? Who is he really? If we're going to say we are everyday people following Jesus every day, who is it that we are following every day? Who is this person really? And so we'll look at some powerful, amazing stories and not just zero in on the powerful, amazing, miraculous part, but who do we see Jesus to be? What do we learn about Jesus in this story? We're going to be using Matthew's account of Jesus's life, Matthew's gospel, his his good news, his story about Jesus. Uh, Matthew was one of those disciples who followed Jesus around and did some research into Jesus's life before he entered into it. And so we're following through these stories and following along with Matthew and standing next to him sort of and saying, okay, what do we see when we look at Jesus in this story? Uh, Today we are going to be in what we now call chapter 14 of Matthew's gospel, where there are two of uh, perhaps the most famous stories of Jesus's life and ministry. There's a story of an incredible provision of food for many, many people, uh, and a story of Jesus walking on water. Now, our stories, like especially familiar ones, sometimes I think the most familiar stories, we lose the most details. And, and here's what I mean. If you think of, a, think of some story about your parents, okay? Some story about your parents. Good, bad, ugly, whatever. You won't have to tell it. Think of some story. As you think of that story, particularly if you're a good storyteller, you're only including the details that get you to the punchline of the story. Like the reason you remember that story is because there is some significant ending or moment in it. Maybe it's funny, maybe it's serious, maybe it's moving, maybe it's sad, whatever. But there's a point to that story that's why you remember it. And so as you're trying to retell that story, you're only including the relevant details that get you to that story. So if it's not relative, relevant what people wore in that story, when you tell it, you don't mention it. If the smells, the sounds are not relevant to the point of that story or what you have decided the point of that story is, uh, you don't include those things. Now, if I prompt you with that, you can maybe think of this story and go, oh, actually, I do remember what my dad was wearing. Or I do remember that mom was baking muffins in the kitchen. Or what, right? We, we can start to pull those pieces out. But typically, when we tell the story, we don't because the story is so familiar that we just go through the familiar parts. So we are going to go through some familiar stories today, uh, and I want us to uh, dig into these uh, stories a little bit deeper. So uh, I'm actually going to have a couple people come up and read these stories uh, so that you're hearing some different voice than, than mine, um, and uh, then we're going to have a little more group participation and dig into these stories just a smidge, okay? So I'm going to invite uh, Robert to come up. Uh, and read the first uh, story with us. This is uh, Matthew chapter 14, 
verses 13 through 21. Check. It's a different voice. I just don't know if it's better, so we'll see. It's, it's lovely. Doing great. <clears throat> so this is verse 13. As soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. That evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, That isn't necessary. You feed them. But we only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here, he said. Then he told the people to sit down on the grass. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up towards the heaven and blessed them. Then, breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples who distributed it into the people. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterwards the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. About 5,000 men and women were fed that day, in addition to all the women and children. Awesome. Thank you, Robert. Okay. So let's dig into this story a little bit. Uh, feel free to just shout out answers to this when you have them. Who are the people in this story? Who, who are the, and, and just as a side note, I didn't say characters um, because I think when we talk about characters in the Bible, sometimes we can start to think this is a story that somebody made up, right? Like there are characters in The Little Mermaid. There are people in these stories. These are actual stories. So who are the people in, these sto in this story? Who, who's here? Disciples, to, to people like whispering Jesus. Like, I think Jesus is the answer. In this case, yes, Jesus is the answer. He's in this, he's in this story. Yeah, so, so disciples, Jesus. Who else? Sick, yep, crowd. Crowds of people, okay. Lots of people in the story. The setting of this story is uh, that Jesus, is some remote location. Jesus is trying to get away. What we read, right, what we would read right before this story, is that he was grieving. So he's trying to get away uh, to some remote place, and the people uh, all show up, uh, and there are lots and lots of people. Uh, this, again, because it's familiar, it's hard to recognize what Matthew does here, um, but he actually takes us, he mentions a crowd of people, but he takes us all the way through the story and says, Jesus provided enough plus leftovers, and then he says, there are 5,000 men plus women and children. Like, this is a, whatever crowd you were picturing, this is, <laughs> this is so much bigger uh, than, than that. Uh, and if uh, we are able to remember uh, our literature lessons from school, we know there's a pattern to stories, right? There's a beginning, there's a climax, there's a conclusion. Uh, sorry, English teachers, I know there's a lot more elements to that, but this will work for this morning. So there's a beginning, climax, and right, the climax is the point of the story where the big uh, clash comes to a, to a head, right? Um, and I would argue that the climax of this story is actually in verse 17 and 18, where the disciples come to Jesus and go, but we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. That's all we've got. And Jesus says, give them here. Give them here. Now, what are the disciples uh, experiencing in verse 17 here? They, they're going, but we only have. I mean, they're, they're, in, they're incredulous. They're, they're going, there's no way something can happen here. 
Like they've seen Jesus do some powerful and amazing things. He's healed people. There's, there's a story a couple chapters ago where Jesus told uh, the wind and the waves to calm down. They're all in a boat. The storm is like, the, Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat, right? Some of you know this story. And, and the disciples are, are looking at the wind and the waves and they wake him up and they go, we're going to die. You might want to be awake for this part, which I'm not really sure why. Like they don't ask him to do anything about it. They're just like, hey, we're going to die. You should wake up. I mean, like let the guy sleep through it. Anyway, so he gets up uh, and he calms the wind and the waves and he settles. They have seen Jesus do some remarkable things. And we looking back, knowing all the things that Jesus is capable of, go, come on, guys, why did you doubt him? He's right there. He's going to take the. But let's be real. That is a completely unrealistic expectation. Like, that's a step too far. Like, okay, sure, he can control the wind and the waves. That's cool. He can heal people. But, but to take, like, five pieces of food and feed however many thousands and thousands of people that is, uh, I think they had good reason to doubt that anything was going to come of this. And maybe some of the introverts were just like, look, just send them home. Like, just make them go away. Anyway, uh, Jesus said, bring him here. What the disciples are experiencing is, is doubt. They doubt that this is going to work out well. Specifically, they doubt Jesus's provision uh, and Jesus's power. They doubt Jesus's provision and power. And again, expecting him to provide here would be a ridiculous expectation. But nonetheless, it is what they doubt. They don't, they don't believe that Jesus could possibly provide for all these people. Uh, and they, they doubt his power, even given everything that they have seen from him, uh, that this just, seems, this just seems too much. And then he does it. He does it right in the face of their doubt. He says, well, give him here. Watch this. And then I love that the disciples hand out the food uh, and then there is uh, exactly enough leftovers for all of them to come back with a basket full of food and go, oh, <laughs> like I get some too. It's crazy. In this story uh, of feeding the 5,000, Jesus is revealed to be a powerful and compassionate provider. A powerful and compassionate provider provider. I don't miss this word uh, that's in verse 14, uh, chapter 14. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. He had compassion on them and, and that compassion for the crowd underlies everything that happens next. He is grieving and could have told them to bug off and go away probably would have been justified in doing so. He didn't ask them to show up. He had compassion on them. He healed their sick. He provided for their needs. He's a powerful and compassionate provider. In this way, it is in this way that we see Jesus reveal who he is in the stories uh, that he lived out. Okay. Next story, uh, I'm going to invite uh, Gwen to come up and keep reading us through uh, Matthew chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 22. Again, a familiar story, uh, so I invite you to pay attention to all the things that you might not normally notice in this story, and then we'll talk about it. Check. Starting in verse 22. 
Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from the land, for a strong wind had arisen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I'm here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But then he saw the strong wind and the waves, and he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. Okay, so let's pay attention to the story. Who, you know, same, same question, who is in this story? Who do you notice? Disciples? Jesus. That's it. Unless the storm is a character, which it's not a Disney movie, so probably not. But disciples, specifically Peter gets called out or calls himself out or something, we'll talk about that, and, uh, and, and Jesus. And they are on the lake in a storm. It says at the beginning of the story that Jesus insisted they get on a boat. And I don't know what their resistance was. You only insist if somebody is pushing back against you. Uh, if they were trying to still get away from the crowds, he wouldn't have had to insist. He insists. There's a, there's a push to that word that they get on a boat. And uh, he finally gets to go off by himself and have that alone time he was looking for. Uh, and then in the middle of the night, they find themselves in this storm, uh, which, again, should feel familiar. Boat, middle of the night, storm. The difference is, the last time, Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. He was on the boat with them. This time, they can't go wake him up. They can't say, hey, can you do that thing again? Because that was pretty cool. Uh, they, they just are left out there battling against this storm, going, what do we do? And then, when their fear is probably at its highest, some figure comes moving along the top of the water toward them. And because they are freaked out, they go to, I suppose, the worst possible scenario, and they think it is a ghost. And, okay, this is bad already, and now something is moving uh, toward us, which actually makes far more sense than if they had said, oh, it's Jesus. Because you don't actually expect your friend that you were just eating with to come walking on top of the water in the middle of a storm. That's just not how it works. So again, we look back at it and go, well, of course it was Jesus. That's actually far less logical than it being a ghost, I think. So, so they exclaim, it is a ghost. And Jesus says, oh, but, but it, um, guys, actually, it's, it's me. Uh, I uh, am uh, in, in here. So they're freaked out. Jesus calls out, hey, take courage. It's me. Hey, be encouraged. I'm here. 
Now, Peter seems to take courage and says, okay, if it's you, let me come walk on the water with you. Like, like if this, Jesus, this is an awesome opportunity. So this is you. I, call me out onto the water. And Peter steps out onto the water and he walks on top of the waves until at some point, he, it's like he realizes what he's doing and he looks around and goes, oh, those are big waves. And it says he begins to sink. And I don't know what begins to sink means. I mean, like he slowly slid into the water or like all of a sudden he was sinking to the bottom and there was no way out. I don't know. But he begins to sink. He cries out. Uh, and Jesus reaches down uh, and, and grabs uh, his hand. Uh, and he says this in verse 31. It says, Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? Now, the New Living Translation is the only one that puts that me in there. Uh, everywhere else, it just says doubt. Why? So they're making a read. And we're going to talk about some different things Peter could be doubting here. And Jesus is certainly one of them. But, but ouch. Like, Peter takes this step, and he's walking on water, and then he begins to sink. And Jesus goes, oh, you have so little faith. Why did you doubt? Okay, so what is Peter doubting here? Some possibilities. You'll notice in your notes that all these have a question mark after them uh, because we don't know for sure. So let's toss out some options. The first is maybe Peter is doubting his own abilities. And by this, I mean that maybe he looked at the waves and he became afraid uh, that he was doing something new and became convinced he wouldn't be able to do it. Maybe some of you have experienced this before. I know I have many times. We're doing a new thing and uh, there's the excitement of doing it at first, and then you get to a point a couple steps in where it's like, oh, actually, this is really hard and a little bit scary, and I don't think I can do it. And in Peter's case, he begins to sink. Maybe what Jesus is saying is that he lost sight of what he is capable of if he just keeps his eyes on Jesus. Maybe he lost sight of his own ability when propped up, literally, by Jesus to be able to walk on the water. The word doubt here in, in Greek is very, very similar, overlaps with the word for hesitate. That maybe that would actually be a better translation of this would be that Peter hesitated. Why did you hesitate? So, so maybe the question is more like, hey, Peter, what stopped you? Why do you hesitate when you saw the waves? Or uh, maybe in the same vein, what Peter doubted was Jesus's power. He doubted Jesus' abilities. He took his eyes off Jesus and forgot that the power of Jesus is what held him above the waves and could continue to hold him above the waves. He looked around and he saw the size of the waves and he somehow forgot that it was Jesus who was holding him up. Or he somehow doubted that Jesus' power could sustain him over those waves. And I'm going to guess I'm not the only one who gets this way, where I look at the circumstances around me and I go, these are too big. And I, would, I wouldn't ever say out loud, these are too big for God to handle, because my theology knows better than that, but sometimes my heart doesn't, right? And, and we look at some things and go, whoa, that, I don't even know how to begin praying for that. This is too big. I am just going to drown in these circumstances that I find myself in. Jesus has left me out here to drown. These waves are too big. 
I think some version of uh, these first two uh, is what most sermons on uh, this, at least most sermons I've heard on this story, generally tie back to in, in some way. That Peter takes this bold step uh, and that he takes his eyes off Jesus and in taking his eyes off Jesus, he either makes it about his own abilities, which of course he can't walk on water, or uh, he loses sight of Jesus's power. Uh, and, and both of those interpretations, again, are totally valid things that Peter may be uh, doubting here that may cause him to hesitate. One more possibility. Uh, Jesus did not say, hey, take courage, y'all. Come walk with me. He actually said to the men in the boat, hey, take courage. I am here. And I assume that he expected them to remember that all of this felt very familiar. Because right? it's just a few chapters ago, a few days or weeks or we don't know how long, where, where Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, that he would expect to say, hey, I'm here, and they would go, oh, good, he can do something about this that we can't. Take courage, guys, it's me, I'm here. But Peter's response is actually, okay, so if it's really you, so if it's you, call me out onto these waves. And I'm not entirely sure uh, why that would be Peter's reaction in any of these scenarios, personally. But Peter says, okay, if it's you, then call me out onto the, the water. Jesus just said in his own voice, hey guys, it's me. And Peter says, yeah, but if it's you, so what if the doubt that Jesus is referencing is that Peter doubted Jesus' identity? He doubted who Jesus said he was. What if those with courage were actually the ones who took him at his word and stayed in the boat? Now, we don't like to tell the story that way because it doesn't match with our American pioneering spirit very well, where we want to be the bold ones who get out of the boat and do something amazing. And that's great. And absolutely could be the point of this story. I also want to suggest that it is possible that recognizing the voice of God and that whatever circumstances you are in, saying, okay, Jesus is here and he's with me and so I can take courage in that and I don't have to prove it. That may actually be the most courageous thing in some circumstances. Regardless of what the doubt is, uh, whichever one of these three options Jesus is referring to. My favorite part of this story is that as Peter begins to sink, Jesus reaches down and pulls him up out of the water and walks him back into the boat, however many steps that is that Peter was able to take, and then calms the storm. How often are we crying out to God God, I need you to calm the storm. The circumstances are too much. What I really would like you to do, you've done it before. You've done it before. You have calmed the wind and the waves before. What I want you to do is I want you to calm the storm. And instead of proving his power in that moment, which he absolutely could do, Jesus took him by the hand and he walked him through the storm back into the boat that he had insisted Peter get on. How often does God not not prove his power in a moment, but prove his compassion 
and his closeness and his love and take us by the hand and walk us through whatever those roiling circumstances may be into the boat that he has provided for us. In this story, Jesus is revealed to be a powerful and divine savior. In the previous story of Jesus calming the wind and the waves, the disciples' reaction was uh, just overwhelmed. And, and the question they asked was, what kind of man is this? Who, who is this guy that he can calm the wind and the waves that they obey them? So they were left with a question. At the end of this story, they answer that question. You really are the son of God. Jesus is revealed to be a powerful and divine savior. In just two stories here, we learn that Jesus is compassionate and powerful and divine, that he's our provider, our rescuer, our savior. And we learn this because we take time to notice Jesus in these stories. To really notice Jesus, not just the miraculous actions, but what those actions actually teach us about him. Okay, let's, uh, let's change gears and take this from the biblical story to your story. Who is Jesus in your story? Who is Jesus in your story? And I want to answer this. Again, we don't create who the Jesus is in our story any more than we do in the Bible story. We're not, we're not making up a Jesus here. We're noticing. We want to notice who Jesus is in our stories. So I actually want to take us through uh, a little exercise. Uh, There's one of my favorite questions that I've ever heard a counselor ask. Uh, and you didn't know you were going through corporate counseling this morning. Um, but, and if that made you panic a little bit, don't worry. This is just between you and Jesus. Uh, but I, w- I would like to ask us to uh, reflect on a couple of things. Okay. So uh, what I would like you to do um, is I would like you to think of a true, something that happened to you, to remember a moment of joy. I'd like you to remember a moment of joy, okay? Maybe it was this morning, maybe it was when you were eight, maybe it was when you accomplished some dream. Picture some moment of joy, and then you may need to close your eyes to do this and picture the moment, and I know this sounds a little woo-woo, but stick with me, okay? What I want you to notice in this is, I want you to notice the story, notice the moment. Who is in this moment? This moment of joy. What colors do you see? What sounds do you hear? And where is Jesus in this moment? Jesus promised that he would be with us always. Jesus promised that his spirit fills the world around us. So he's, in theory, there somewhere. Where is Jesus in this moment of joy? Is he standing over in the corner observing Is he in the middle of it trying to break up the fun? Is he laughing with you? Does he have his arm around the person that you're looking at? 
Where is Jesus in this moment? And what do you notice about him? Okay, part two. Some of you knew we were going here. I would like you to remember a moment of pain. It does not have to be your most painful moment, although it can be. I'd like you to remember a moment of pain. And I'd like you to notice it. Who else is there? What colors do you see? What sounds do you hear? And where is Jesus in this moment? He promised he would be there. Where is Jesus in this moment? And notice him. What do you see on his face? What do you hear from him or watch him do? Okay, church, look at me. You need to know that the same Jesus of compassion and power and provision that we read about in these stories is the same Jesus who is in those moments with you. That the Jesus in these stories is the same Jesus in your story. And for some people, that is really scary, particularly when we think about a moment of pain, because you go, wait, 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 you mean he was there and he didn't stop it? And I will not pretend to have any idea what pain stories are carried into this room. I don't know why Jesus healed some and not others. We don't compare pain stories because the pain cuts deep and that's enough. I don't know why my mom died 30 years ago and yours is 72 and fighting off dementia. I don't, I don't know. What I do know is that the same Jesus of compassion and provision and holiness that we read about in these stories is in your story. I know that this Jesus mourns with those who mourn and comforts the afflicted. I know that this Jesus loves to laugh and celebrate and take great joy in the victories of life. I know that when we do the silliest, strangest, funniest, quirkiest things that we hope nobody has a video camera on for, that Jesus delights in who we are. That this Jesus of compassion and glory and humility and holiness is the Jesus in our stories, in the hard moments and the beautiful, joyful moments. Which means that when you tell your story, 
somebody else gets to notice Jesus in your story. When you share where Jesus was in your hard moments, when you share the circumstances that Jesus had, had scooped you up from because he scoops up the drowning and he walks them back into the boat, when you can tell that story, people get to notice Jesus in your story. When you can tell a story of celebration and victory and how Jesus laughed with you, people get to notice Jesus in that story. So what will the people around you learn from the Jesus in your story? What will you notice of Jesus in your story? Because the stories we tell are the stories that we are living out, are the stories that make up our lives. And our lives, as those who are following Jesus, get to tell his story. So let me pray for us as we do that. Father God, we give to you our stories, our lives, where we've been telling them wrong, would you correct us? Where we've been trying to remove you from them, would you insert yourself? Where we've been missing your compassion because we didn't look, would you open our eyes? Where we need you to mourn with us, would you comfort us? Where we laugh together, would you laugh with us? Where we need you to provide for us, Jesus, would you move in miraculous and powerful ways to provide? And would our stories give you all the glory that you deserve? To thank you and praise you for who you are so that others might notice your love and grace for them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.